The interview that you're about to hear will be a discussion, a very candid and frank discussion, in-depth discussion between myself, Bishop T.D. Jakes, and President Cornell William Brooks. He is the current executive board president for the NAACP. It should be interesting and enlightening. Mr. Brooks, I want to thank you for joining us today. You have a very prestigious career. You've and now currently serving as president of the NAACP, but you have a long history of having worked for reformation and been a strong fighter for social justice in the various capacities that you have served previously in New Jersey and in other areas of service as an attorney working for the betterment of the community. I wondered, though, since you are fairly new into this role soon after you were elected to your current role as president and CEO of the NAACP, you ran right into the Michael Brown murder. And I wondered what was that like for you to walk right into such a high-profile case? It was extraordinarily wrenching, spiritually and emotionally speaking. So I came to the association in July of, of 2014, And the second week on the job was Eric Garner in Staten Island, and a few weeks later, Ferguson and Michael Brown. But having spent the better part of 20 years as a civil rights litigator, uh, working seven years in Newark, New Jersey on criminal justice reform, the issues were not new, but the magnitude of the tragedy was entirely unprecedented for me, namely having uh, yet another police shooting in the middle of a relatively small Midwest town that nevertheless metastasized into a global civil rights crisis. I mean, if you can think about the fact that you had young people who took out their cell phones and mobile devices and put Michael Brown's body and image and circulated around the world and as a consequence put the name Michael Brown on Barack Obama's lips in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, You had people all across this country talking about policing in emotionally wrenching terms. And so as a new CEO, I'd be less than candid if I didn't say that it didn't have a tremendous impact on my understanding of the work. That is to say that for such a time as this, I I really came to believe that I'm in this position at the NAACP at a particular moment in time to do and to answer a prophetic call. And so it was a, a powerful moment. You know, when you think about that, I I know that the issues are not new and you have served in various capacities before. But what is new is that you're now CEO of a a historical organization. How has that been an asset or changed the way in which you approach the issues when it comes to speaking and representing a larger body of people as you begin to tackle such complex issues that were played out in the press in such a way that America is watching? Was there a different type of caution or a different type of approach that you had to move as you now represented the NAACP? Well, Bishop, you feel representing the nation's largest, oldest and most prominent civil rights organization, the weight of history. That is to say, 170 years of history extending back to the days of Roy Wilkins and W.E.B. Du Bois and Rosa Parks and Ida B. Wells. You feel the weight of that history in this job, and yet you also feel the pull of contemporary circumstance. And so what that means is every time that you uh, speak to the issue of policing, body cameras, the need for independent uh, civilian review boards, a need for both federal and state legislation, it's not a pure policy call. 
It's also the call of history. And so when you think about the NAACP's commitment to bringing about policing reform, way before viralized police videos and hashtag tragedies, going back to uh, the, the first video, if you will, of the modern era, namely Rodney King, the NAACP has been on the forefront. But going back farther still to the challenges that the NAACP took on in the last century, that is to say that 20th century form of of racialized violence, namely lynching, as opposed to the 21st century form of racialized violence, namely police misconduct, we have long been in this fight. And so the point being that as the president and CEO of the NAACP, you feel the weight of history, but also the pull of all the mothers and fathers within our ranks who want to seek justice. I mean, I'd be less than candid if I didn't say when I met with Philando Castile's mother and she, meeting with a group of preachers, attempted to comfort us having lost her son. That does something to your spirit. It does something to your soul. And and not just as an individual, but as president of this extraordinary civil rights organization, which is to say that we are as relevant as the moment that we're standing in. And we're standing in a pretty extraordinary moment. You know, when when you look at the complexities of this moment, you're also not only taking charge of a historical organization, but you also have the complexities of dealing with a new generation, perhaps a generation who had never confronted as graphically the types of injustices that we are seeing in a contemporary society with the millennials and the coming of the iPhones and the ability to have the social media and all of these assets, the narrative and the conversation is often convoluted by a lot of different perspectives bombarding all of ventricles of society today in a way that cannot be harnessed, galvanized, or controlled. There is a huge conversation going on on social media that Dr. King never had to deal with, and uh, none of the people that you listed before, uh, W.E. Du Bois and others, did not have to grapple with a narrative that hit the black community, often from sources that are so diverse and unharnessed that the wind of it hits our society and even affects the media in such a a profound way and sometimes a graphic way in a way in which Mm. we are unable to really control the conversation at all. Has that been difficult as you really tried to get your arms around the various movements, Black Lives Matter, Urban League, we have new voices, sometimes we have just vigilante voices. How how do we become one people Mm. uh, in the face of the assaults that are coming against us now? Bishop, here's what I would note, that we have a dazzling variety of communication platforms in terms of social media, uh, Periscope and Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, so on and so forth. But while the communication platforms are diverse, the moral narrative is familiar, which is to say black bodies being abused and desecrated and taken for granted and black lives being taken for granted. This cry for the importance and the mattering, if you will, of black lives is far older than this digital age that we find ourselves in. And so while we have a cacophony of voices, a generationally diverse set of voices crying for justice, the fact of the matter is this is not new to the NAACP. We've always had generationally diverse voices. I mean, if you think about 
Dr. King is a young member of the NAACP in Montgomery, and then going on to form his own organization, and then several years later becoming the old man of the movement uh, with John Lewis and Julian Bond following behind him, or Jesse Jackson. So we've always had generationally diverse voices. We've always had many different kinds of voices. It's just the, the speed and the ubiquity of social media means that you hear from so many so much of the time, seemingly everywhere. That being said, it's up to leaders like ourselves, right, to bring about moral clarity, to speak in terms of right and wrong, to speak in terms of righteousness and justice, to speak in terms of specific policy proposals to bring about an end to uh, this era of mass incarceration and police misconduct. And so while we have a great many more voices and diverse voices and sometimes voices in conflict and, and in contention, the fact of the matter is that phrase, Black Lives Matter, is pretty simple. It's a moral declarative. And I would argue that the work of the NAACP at this moment is work we were designed and built to do because we pioneered, if you will, using uh, media to bring about social justice. And when you think about W.E.B. Du Bois using social scientific research to lift up the causes and concerns of black folk, you think about the Brown versus Board Brandeis brief in which on one side of the case, you had precedent and segregation and Jim Crow. And on the other side, you had this expansive view of the law in which we use dolls. Think about that. Dolls and social scientific uh, research to make our case that separate was inherently unequal. So we know how to communicate. We've done it. Uh, this is a part of our history and our legacy and our present moment. And so while it can be daunting, it can be discouraging to try to sound a clarion call for reform amidst this cacophony of voices, the fact of the matter is we're well able to do this because people are looking for credible, serious, authentic voices. In other words, not just tweeting about social justice, but standing in solidarity with people who've seen and felt the brunt of injustice. And that's where the NAACP comes into play. When you have 2,200 branches all across the country in every state of the nation, in colleges, high schools, Native American reservations, all 50 states, in every large city in the country, we are present. And, and I want to emphasize that there's an authenticity that comes from showing up, not just tweeting, not just uh, protesting, not demonstrating, but being there when the legislature convenes, being there when the city council comes together, being there to comfort a, a victim or a victim's family of police misconduct, being there with people who are feeling the brunt of injustice. And I, I think because of that, the NAACP is particularly well-positioned to speak with moral authority and with policy authority as well. President Brooks, thank you for that. I was thinking in my mind at the height of the crisis that we have had in recent days, Don Lemon on CNN hosted a town hall meeting. And in the town hall meeting, I was blessed to be one of the spokespersons that spoke during the town hall meeting. And one of the things that became really difficult for me is when we discuss these type of topics and we look at them as individual cases, people fail to see that the narrative goes beyond the individual cases to the overall assault on the African-American community. We've got 40 million African-Americans in the United States right now. And I made a statement that night. I said, 
There are 40 million of us. I said, we don't agree on everything. We're not a monolithic society. We're very, very diverse. And sometimes we don't even agree and or like each other when it comes to certain issues. But when it comes to this one particular issue across the board, from rappers to Republicans to Democrats, everywhere we are seeing African-American people, with the exception of a few that show up from time to time at the behest of other people, the vast majority of us are all in agreement about this. It's not like we had a meeting and worked up a story to tell. And my frustration comes from the fact that we are crying out for something and then those who do not see it almost imply that we are liars or that it is concocted or that we don't see it correctly or that we don't understand the hemorrhaging of our own black heart and soul. That is a place of great frustration for me. Do you find it aggravating, annoying, or frustrating in any way that our voices are not being heard, even in the fact that we have so many methods of communication currently available to us, videotapes, footages coming from all directions, the weeping of our mothers, the occasional indictment of police officers, and then often the like thereof, and still for people to say there's no smoking gun there. Why is that, and how do you feel about it? Bishop, you have named something which uh, goes to the heart of systemic and institutional racism in this country, which is to say the seemingly innate lack of credibility of black voices, black intellect, black spirituality. Note this, we, where we have nearly 800 deaths at the hands of the police thus far this year, 2.2 million Americans behind bars, 1 million fathers behind bars, disproportionately African-American, 65 million Americans with criminal uh, records. Over and over again, we find that African-American voices in particular seem to be deemed less credible. And so it is only with the advent of these police videos that you have our voices beginning to be heard. But here's what I note. There's a kind of reverse CSI effect. That is to say, people assume unless there's a video, we can't believe that this kind of violence perpetuated against the African-American community is real. And so there's a tendency, even with the videos, to assume that these incidents of police misconduct are isolated, they're anecdotal, they're episodic as opposed to being routine, normal, and emblematic of the state, uh, broken state of policing in this country. And so the police videos, the hashtag communications, the tweets, all help attest to the credibility of our voices, particularly millennial voices. But I will simply say, at some point or another, we have to stand flat-footed and say our voices are credible in and of themselves. And that what we have to say about the American experience is credible in and of itself, both historically speaking and empirically speaking. Because here's what we know. We know that in terms of police misconduct in this country, we know for a fact that there's cities that have low crime rates that don't brutalize their citizens. We know that. We have cities around the country we can point to. We also know that there's cities, for example, in Chicago, where they've doled out a half billion dollars in legal settlements. We have a city where a video of Laquan McDonald being shot in the back, being shot on the ground, took over a year to surface. 
what we know here is that there are cities in this country that don't have it right, that have a broken form of policing, that discount the voices and the credibility of their citizens to detrimental effect. And so we are at a moment in this nation's history where, yes, we have a policing problem to solve, but we also have a credibility to establish. And we are at a moment where we have a generation of millennials who, as they put it, are woke and are conscious and are aware. And they're saying, you know, we have to get beyond the politics of respectability. We can't simply dress well enough, speak well enough, so that our voices are assumed to be credible. We have to say to the country, our voices are credible, and we will continue to make the case to ensure that they're heard as credible and that that credibility is translated into solid policy, into reform that could do something to reduce the level of victimization of African-American communities uh, by the police and others. According to an analysis by Governing Magazine, officer-involved homicides are highest in the southeastern U.S., areas like Alabama, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Georgia, Arkansas, Louisiana, have the most police deaths given their number of officers. Why do you think that that is? Well, it may well be that this is also the part of the country where you have the highest number of African Americans. You also have the deepest and darkest uh, legacy of slavery. There's research that shows that in the municipalities, in the jurisdictions that have a legacy of slavery, these are the same counties, same jurisdictions, same municipalities that invest the least in education, where the racial divide is the widest, where the lack of economic progress is the greatest. These things are not unrelated. And so in other words, where we see a chasm between the police and the community it is not surprising that it would be in the very states where the distance between the races is wide as a consequence of a legacy of racism. That doesn't surprise me. And I would imagine that volumes of sociology and even theology and history might be written about why that is, in fact, the case. You know, as we search to find the fault line as to where the divide is, it is often spoken of totally in racial terms. But Mm -hmm. uh, even in a city like Dallas, where I'm from, during the Black Lives Matter protest, there was a huge group of diversity. There were lots of whites and Hispanics marching out there along with African-Americans. Do you think that we serve ourselves well to take on the fight totally from an African-American perspective and not bring to the forefront other races who also concur that there is absolutely injustice, not only within this country, but around the world. There were protests in other parts of the world who stood in solidarity. Do you think that the narrative needs to be more comprehensive in order to have more depth or weight? Or should we continue along the lines of painting it between black and white and blue? How do you think that needs to to continue to be discussed? Now, Bishop, you again have named this quite well. So empirically speaking, statistically speaking, the majority of People who lose their lives at the hands of the police are not African-American. They're disproportionately African-American, but not always African-American, point one. Point two, when the NAACP released its report on uh, police misconduct in this country, the report being called Born Suspect, we not only surveyed the degree to which African-Americans were subject to stop and frisk and racial profiling, but we also 
surveyed profiling with respect to the LGBTQ community. We also uh, surveyed the ways in which the Latino community has been affected by profiling, as well as the Muslim community. And so whether it be as a matter of race, religion, ethnicity, this is a problem that goes way beyond the African-American community. The fact that it disproportionately affects African-Americans does not mean it exclusively affects African-Americans. And so as a consequence of both describing the problem and also prescribing uh, a solution, we have to go beyond racial boxes to speak about the breadth of the problem and also speak about the fact that we as Americans have to categorically reject this kind of mistreatment of our citizens. And I dare say for those who claim faith, we have to be outraged by the way in which our fellow citizens are treated, not merely because they're black or Latino or Muslim or LGBTQ, but rather because they are children of God. That is the greatest offense for those of us who claim to be um, followers of Christ, who claim to be people of faith. And so I would agree with you that though the problem is often uh, disproportionately racially, ethnically, religiously specific, our response to it must be universal. Our response to it must fundamentally speak to our humanity and to our faith and to our common citizenship. And so I think you've named it uh, exactly. We've got to go way beyond this black and white box because the victims of profiling are uh, multiracial and the opponents must be as well. And I'm seeing more opponents rising up from all walks of life, which is precisely my point. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more other people groups take on these issues and not only to validate the casualties within their communities, but to say that we are one community, that we are one America. I don't think that this is an African-American problem. I think it's an American crisis. And as such, all Americans who recognize the loss of your child, not to say that the child is without fault or without mistakes or without issues that come up in later reports and court cases, but the very fact that they are unarmed, my issue because comes, whatever they did right or whatever they did wrong. We don't want our sons and daughters tried on the sidewalk, especially when they pose no threat to the officers, as we have seen in many, many cases. But I want to move to this. I was raised in West Virginia, and often there were coal mining calamities that would happen in the state of West Virginia. And then we would have to do research as to find out what the fault was that caused the calamities to occur. I'm currently working right now in Los Angeles, where there has been toxic waste in various upper echelon communities. And the energy companies have been asked to police themselves and found out that they could do it no more than the coal miners could. We would not have a physician that was brought up on charges and then let the physician study the case himself and bring his own conclusion forward and be accepted. We would always bring in an outside independent party to overview and oversee those cases, and we really don't get any kind of justice until somebody outside of the system begins to investigate, as is the case with Flint and the water crisis up there. Why is it that the narrative in this country has become such that if you challenge any police officer, then you have assaulted all police officers. Why is it that we see that differently than we do doctors or any other institution in our society where we can take you to task? It doesn't mean that we don't believe in doctors, that we can challenge the actions of one doctor uh, without saying that we don't believe in medicine. Why is it that when it comes to the police officers, the narrative is often brought up in the press that if you challenge these particular incidents, 
since you have insulted police officers in general or do not validate the fact that there are many, many good police officers that we need and that we support and that all of our communities applaud their efforts and their bravery and their heroic efforts to police our communities. And yet we must police those that are illegitimate or ill-advised or in the moment of desperation just made a bad choice. Why is it that we are turned into some caricature of righteousness that suggests that in some way we are violating police in general because we challenge these individual cases? Mm. Well, Bishop, this this goes to the heart of this crisis of conscience in the country. I believe that we are presented with this false choice, with this uh, moral dichotomy, primarily because police uh, in this country are— they're viewed as protectors. They're protectors of not only communities and public safety, but they're also seen as guardians of values, our, our way of life, if you will. And so people don't regard the police in the same way they regard lawyers, in the same way they regard doctors. They really regard them in, in a very, very visceral sort of way. And so we're often presented with this false choice between the police or the community. Now, here's what's left out. What's left out is this. If you stand for the positions, for the values of the community calling for community policing, in so doing, you're calling for police officers being made more safe, not less safe. You're calling for prosecutions being made easier and more effective and more likely to bring Uh, wrongdoers to justice. Why? Because where you have community policing, witnesses are much more likely to come forward. They're much more likely to participate with the police in a prosecution, in an investigation. They're much more likely to keep police officers safe as well as the community safe. And here's what you also find. What you find is the very reforms that millennials are crying for in the streets The most thoughtful scholars with respect to policing are calling for in the academy, calling for in the ranks and among the ranks of the police. That's the reality. And so this false choice that we are presented with, the police or the community, is in fact a pseudo choice that endangers both the community and the police. And so the fact of the matter is that when you have worked in poor communities, you don't hear people who've lived with crime, calling for the abolition of the police. You don't hear people who've lived in communities where drug dealers have a great deal of sway and control street corners. You don't hear those folks calling for the abolition of the police. What people call for are police who honor their oaths, honor their badges, honor their uniforms, and police with the community as protectors as opposed to policing the community as an occupying army. That is what you find. And the best of the research suggests this. The uh, president's task force on 21st century policing certainly attests to this. And I can tell you, having crisscrossed the country, this is what I see over and over again. And as a young lawyer at the Justice Department, having the responsibility of getting witnesses to come forward, one of the things I can tell you is law enforcement depends on trust. When you don't have trust, you don't have much law enforcement. And so it's a false choice, it's a bad choice, and it's an anachronistic choice that we as a country are well beyond. 
Let's go a little bit deeper, President Brooks. When you consider the fact that this is my view, that when we're talking about up to this point, what is happening on the sidewalk mm-hmm. and what's happening in car side, highway side arrest, uh, to me, it is a boil. It is a symptom of a far deeper infection that pollutes the overall criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. For the last 10 years, I have founded the Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative, working to reduce the rate of recidivism and create opportunities for former inmates within the state of Texas. So you're really preaching to the choir when you're talking to me about this sort of thing. One of the things that frustrates me with the criminal justice system beyond the police officers is as a nation, we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. 716 per 100,000 or three and a half times that of Europe. We also far exceed Canada, Australia, which was a former penal colony, New Zealand and Japan. How have the policies of prior administrations, tough on crime policies, created a prison boom at times when crime was actually and literally in our country on a downturn? Still, incarceration is on an upswing. And B, to that question, how can we justify fiscal integrity for our country as it relates to reducing the rate of debt in this country when it is actually cheaper to rehabilitate inmates than it is to incarcerate them? Bishop, this goes to the heart of the issue. So what we have here is a toxic policy brew of primal fears, a kind of moral panic in the community with just wrongheaded understanding of what's effective in terms of of criminal justice. So if you look at Douglas Blackman's work, who traces this era of penal servitude that began after Uh, the Civil War up through the the 30s and 40s, where black folks disproportionately were forced into a kind of penal servitude. Uh, They were criminalized, made, created into a kind of economic subcast. Then you have Michelle Alexander and her work, The New Jim Crow, speaking to this era of mass incarceration. What we see in both instances are laws passed that criminalize minor crimes that put people in a position where they are on the economic margins of society. Now, here's what we know. What we know is that where we have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners, where we have a prison industrial complex that literally robs people of their dignity and robs taxpayers of their hard-earned taxes. It's inefficient. It is ineffective. And what we have seen across the country, and let me note, Texas, not a blue state, not known as a particularly liberal state, but Texas actually has led the country in terms of prison reentry reform. And there are other states that have done the same. What we see is this, where you can convince state legislatures and convince taxpayers that you can have less crime, more people leaving the prison system or being diverted from the prison system into the ranks of the employed, more taxpayers, and you can have more families held intact. All of these things are empirically, statistically uh, researched, attested to. You have good policy. On the other hand, where we trade on people's fears, trade on people's apprehensions, and use criminal justice policy that is ineffective, that is exorbitantly expensive and wasteful, both in terms of lives and dollars, you have bad policy. It's ineffective. That keeps states mired in debt. And so, You know, we've seen, for example, in Missouri, reforms that have been brought about 
bring about uh, fewer young people being incarcerated. We've seen in states like Texas, in states like New Jersey, people being diverted from the criminal justice system altogether through things like drug courts, through veterans courts, through community courts, through youth courts, where we don't even have people going into the prison system at all. And where we have states that have decided, you know what, you may have a criminal record, but that shouldn't keep you from working. A Supreme Court uh, justice once said that a criminal record should not mean a life sentence of unemployment. And what we know is this, the more educated a person is with a criminal record, the more they work and at a higher wage, the less likely they are to return to prison. We know what works. We know what saves money. We know what makes effective criminal justice reform. We just need to do it. And Texas has offered some lessons for the country. Texas has been very, very astute at trying to solve this problem. And there is bipartisan interest on this subject. But when we start turning to politics, there is a conversation. Well, let me do this before I go to that. I think it's important that we draw a link between people who were formerly incarcerated, which are disproportionately people of color, be them black or brown. When they do get out, it's very difficult, if nearly impossible, for them to get a job or even to find a place to stay. They can't. It's on every rental application. It's on every form to buy a house. It's on every application for a job. So these people come out without the opportunity to get a job and the opportunity to get a place to stay. Mm -hmm. And then we say, we want you to be upstanding citizens. And then we amass these people into the same geographical location, and we wonder why we have crime and violence and domestic violence and frustration, and it sounds like these people are just bad people. No, they're people without equal opportunities and often people without the opportunity to be able to vote. And that is a very, very frustrating thing. But when we start to think about this whole conversation about voting, some of the most hard-hit areas have been hard-hit with the blight of poor education, poor criminal justice reform, poor job opportunities, have been communities that existed up under a liberal leadership. And I think that in many cases, our vote has been taken for granted. Then on the other hand, on the conservative side, there has been no arm reached out, no hand toward developing policies that are sympathetic or at least open to the plight of underserved communities at all. Just in this recent election, there has been some discussion about it, but previously there hasn't even been a dialogue as if we didn't even exist in the world at all. When African-American people look at that, on one hand, your vote is taken for granted, and on the other hand, your vote is almost generally ignored and your issues are ignored even when your vote is not. As we approach the electoral process, many, many African Americans are disenchanted. Can you talk to us about why we need to vote and not even to whom, but why we need to still stay in the fight when the polarities seem so discouraging? Mm. The challenge before us is a great many people feel, just as you set forth, that on one side of the aisle, their votes are being taken for granted. On the other side of the aisle, their votes are not seen at all. And the question then becomes, why vote at all? And our answer as the NAACP is not a partisan answer as in which party, which set of candidates is the most attractive, but rather that we are important. In other words, our issues are important. 
our concerns are important and far too important to allow them to be driven by a kind of transitory partisan enthusiasm. So in other words, whether or not any set of candidates or party reaches out to you and makes you feel as though you're at home, you've got to vote on your issues. Because here's what we know. Where a young black man is 21 times more likely to lose his life at the hands of the police, we need policing reform. Where 600,000 votes in Texas are in peril as a consequence of wrong-headed voter ID laws, or 5% of the electorate in North Carolina was vulnerable to voter suppression, or 500,000 votes in Alabama. Where in Flint you have an American city poisoned, a generation of young people poisoned as a consequence of state complicity in what cannot be described as anything other than environmental degradation and discrimination, we have to vote. That's quite simply the reality. We have to vote. And I would argue to uh, many of my uh, millennial brothers and sisters, in an era of rampant voter suppression, voting is not your grandmother's civic pastime. It is an act of radical democracy. When you vote, when people don't want you to vote, and you have something to vote for, it is nothing less than a radical act of democracy. And we have to vote because our issues matter. It's one thing to say black lives matter. It's another thing to say that our votes matter, irrespective of whatever your color, race, or ethnicity. Because if you can take a casual glance around the country at the uh, rank misogyny and racism and anti-Semitism and, and issues being ducked, for soap opera theatrics, and you you can see all of this and not conclude you have to vote to make sure your issues, your concerns, your community is being responded to, you have to do that. You absolutely have to do that. And so uh, one of the best ways to have the parties pay attention to you is by voting. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. As the country waxes more and more brown, one of the things that I don't think that people of color recognize, that it is impossible, it is impossible to be elected uh, into positions today, particularly the higher level positions, without a percentage of minority votes, whether you're Republican or Democrat. That strategically puts us in a position where our issues can be heard and our people have to be considered whether you like us or not in order to win the electoral vote, the preponderance of the vote, you can no longer ignore us. And yet, if we do not vote, we disappear from that narrative and we lose a strategic advantage at a critical time in history. The sexiness, if you will, of the presidential candidacy <laughs> and has bombarded the press and has distracted us from local government, but in all areas, local government, state government, as well as national government, that vote needs to be enforced. And we need to be made aware of the issues in our particular communities, because these are the district attorneys and these are the mayors and these are the people that are going to make the decisions to cause our sons and daughters to have proper education, to have an opportunity to have fair and absolute justice in our communities. So while we are looking at the president, 
We also need to be looking at some of these lower level positions and become involved in, quite frankly, as you said, if you don't vote, you don't count. You can march and marching is important. You can protest and that's important. You can tweet. That's important. But if you don't vote, then there is no obligation amongst elected officials to consider your issues. When we get them to vote, how do we then hold the elected officials to task after they are in the positions of leadership? One of the things that I think is extraordinary about the NAACP, not well-noted, often not particularly well-appreciated, is that we do a good job of trying to hold elected office holders uh, official. For example, uh, we have for 100 years done a report card on Congress where we evaluate everyone in Congress according to, to our issues. We've done that for 100 years to help people have a yardstick, to have a measuring rod, to have a means by which to measure their federal representatives. Point one. Point two, when it comes to local elections, the state conferences and branches of the NAACP will often have guides. They will have uh, issue analyses. They will go before the state legislatures and talk about the issues that are important. Your point about protesting and, and voting, think about this. In Ferguson, Missouri, a great many protests, some voting. But think about this. Only one point of accountability in Ferguson. That was the Justice Department holding the Ferguson Police Department accountable under a pattern and practice investigation, lawsuit, and settlement. When you ask the question, well, where did that come from? It came from evidence, evidence derived from statistics, statistics mandated by law that the NAACP wrote, pushed for, and passed in the Missouri State Legislature. Not Congress, but the state legislature. The point being here is when you have citizens who go to these state capitals, who know what the issues are, know how to testify, know how to partner, put together coalitions, they bring about accountability, not just at the ballot box, but at and in the legislature. Critically important. And so I would simply say to people, go and work with your local NAACP so that you can make your voices heard. And the thing is, the NAACP not only works with our members, we work with a wide variety of partners to make our voices heard. And I want to make this clear, on a bipartisan nonpartisan basis. We work with Democrats, Republicans, Lutherans, Baptists, Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews, Catholics, environmentalists, labor. We work with all kinds of folks to ensure that you have the kind of accountability from our office holders that you can expect and that makes a difference, particularly on those down-ballot issues. Congress moves with a kind of glacial, snailish pace on the other hand, your state legislature moves a lot faster on issues that are a lot closer to you and a lot closer to home. So we're with you in the place where it counts the most. President Brooks, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I need to ask this question. You brought up something when you were talking just a moment ago about Ferguson, and I think it is indicative of many communities in our society. When there are moments of emotional outrage and our community has reached a boiling point, it is far easier to get people out to protest than it is to get them out to vote. Policies don't change through protest alone. They come through voters and the need to acquire those voters why is this election so critical and how can we be really, really aggressive in getting more people out to vote so that our policies can be considered? Well, 
let's know this. So just by way of track record, the NAACP in 2012 moved over a million people to the polls, ranked number one in the country in terms of voter mobilization. So we understand the relationship between policy, protests, and the polls. But one of the ways that we move people to the polls is to do what you, Bishop, have done, which is to say you personally lent your voice to encourage people to vote. That's incredibly important. So we do uh, PSAs. We partner, for example, with Chance the Rapper, who registered with the NAACP 1,000 young people in a single concert in a single night. We are organized in all 50 states through our civic engagement uh, programs and plans to turn out the vote, which means that we call people in their homes, we text people on their mobile phones, we send people door to door to turn out the vote. We also lift up issues that help inspire people to vote. So, for example, we don't just protest police misconduct. We ask the candidates to take a pledge to address police misconduct, and we then send out the pledge to our members. So we tweet, we post on Instagram and Facebook. We use every tool, both old school, new school, baby boomer, millennial, to turn out the vote. That's something we understand how to do and how to do well. But that being said, the NAACP needs partners. We need partners. So the fact that we have a Bishop Jakes encouraging this massive social media audience that you have and traditional media audience that you have helps us tremendously. But we also work with Hollywood celebrities, with athletes, and we simply say if there's anyone listening to this podcast who is compelled and inspired by what you see happening in the country, I would simply say call your state conference of the NAACP, your local branch of the NAACP, and volunteer and reach out and help us move people to the polls. Because here's what we've seen. Certainly I've seen in the last two years as a CEO of the NAACP. There are life and death consequences to not voting. It is just that serious, just that real. And too many of our forebears, foremothers, forefathers died to give us this privilege and the right to vote. And we need to honor their sacrifice, their lives, by getting out to vote and doing more than that uh, by encouraging others to get out to vote and partnering with those who do. Certainly, Bishop Jakes, your ministry, and certainly the work of the NAACP. You know, we're committed to this. We've been doing it for a long time. Recently done voters registration at our church. We've partnered with the NAACP in getting people out to the polls. We've worked with Senator West and Souls to the polls in previous years. And just a few years ago, had the largest amount of people to register to vote than any not-for-profit in an entire state of Texas. There are a lot of churches that are working very diligently to get this done. And often clergy are called into question, are you doing anything mm. for the community. But let's be honest here. There are more people listening at rappers in our society today than there are at preachers. That's a sad narrative, but it's often true. There are more people in the theaters on Friday night than there are in the pews on Sunday morning. What other people need to have responsibility? And to the actors, to the rappers, to all of the people who have been blessed and been benefited by through the auspices of our communities, what can they do to amass and get support behind this cause in terms this is a clarion call from Twitter to Facebook to Instagram to what else can they do to really make their audience aware of the importance of the need to vote? Well, I would simply say to our athletes and our artists, use your platform, your social media platform, partner with the uh, 
NAACP and others to do uh, PSAs. It is incredibly effective. I think there is a former state senator from Illinois who, if you asked him, what's the power of the millennial vote? What's the power of actors and athletes and the NAACP and others who just encourage people to vote? We don't do it on a partisan basis, but we can tell you we've made history in this country. Only four years ago in 2012, millennials elected a president. African-American women elected a president. And so what we're saying here very clearly, to particularly our athletes, our artists, but also our environmentalists, our labor leaders, civil rights leaders, law enforcement, everybody has a platform. Everybody has a platform. We're encouraging you to use it to turn people out to vote and simply reaching out to those on your Facebook list, on your email list, uh, your friends on Twitter, and letting them know that you believe it's incredibly important to vote has a powerful effect. But again, we encourage people to reach out to the NAACP to help us do the work that we've been doing for 100 years. Because here's what we know. We know that the most effective political advertisement is not the one you see on television. It's the one being mounted not by communication experts, but by people who have influence over their friends in their communities. Uh, That would be all the folks who are listening to this podcast. We need you partner with uh, the Ministry of T.D. Jakes, partner with the NAACP, partner with others. Reach out to us so that we might work to turn out people to vote, that they might vindicate and exercise the right to vote. You and I were blessed to live in the time of the first African-American president of the United States. He is coming to the end of eight years of serving this country, eight years without a scandal, eight years without his integrity being compromised. When we look at what we're facing and what we're seeing right now in terms of scandal after scandal after scandal in the headlines, regardless of whether you uh, believe in his policies or not, you certainly have to respect and give a nod to him and our First Lady for their dignity and for the class with which they have held the office. When we consider other aspects of the Obama administration, how would you rate or view where they are and what needs to happen next to the next incumbent president? Yes. Well, certainly this this president deserves credit for the personal integrity that he has demonstrated in, in this office. A great many people in this country look up to the president and see him as a role model and for Uh, Our president to uh, love his wife and love and respect uh, his wife and his daughters and to just carry himself with a moral seriousness and a moral gravitas is important. Going beyond that and looking at policy, I think the president, history will judge him well in terms of health care reform. Believe what you will about Obamacare, from whatever perspective you happen to hold. But most people agree that getting rid of the um, existing condition requirement to enjoy health care was a good thing. Extending the opportunity to get health care through your parents into your mid-20s is a good thing. Uh, most people agree that expanding health care for children is a good thing. So I think the president's going to be judged well by history. I think he'll be judged well by history in terms of bringing the country back for the brink of an economic apocalypse. 
We need to be very clear about this. Back in 2007, 2008, uh, we faced what might have been a worldwide economic recession, depression, the likes of which we have not, many of us have not seen in our life. But going beyond that, the new president will face a country divided by race, divided by economic disparities, riddled with anxiety as a consequence of terrorism abroad and terrorism at home, and face a country that has been torn asunder by the tone and the, the, the moral tension of this campaign. And so I think it's important beyond politics to speak to the need to come together, to remind people that we have far more in common than we do that split us apart, and to remind people that we are penultimately citizens of this republic, and for those of us of faith, ultimately children of God. I think that's important. I think it's important for the new president to speak very seriously about the criminal justices that riddle the public and cause people to distrust the police, and to do something about voter suppression that really is a cancer eating at the core of the organs of this republic. It's going to be critically important to do something about income inequality and income variability, which is just a fancy way of saying most people's incomes swing so much from month to month that they find it hard to maintain a serious and firm grip on their lifestyles and their well-being and their sense of security. Lastly, we have to do something about educational inequity in this country. It cannot be that we have a first-class democracy and a third-class educational system reserved for some of our children, not all of our children. We want all of our children to have a first-class education. And we have to look at the equitable funding of schools, but we also have to look at innovation and creativity and greater accountability in our schools are critically important. So the agenda for the new president is tall, but I have to believe that the will and the determination of the American public is tall and great and wide and deep. And I can certainly tell you this, the NAACP haven't been around for 107 years. Whoever gets elected, whatever their agenda, whatever their party, we're going to be right there in the midst of it doing the work that we've done and will yet do to make this country better. As we come to a close of this interview, I wanted to ask you this. You have the unique position of being the president of the NAACP, which is a huge bully pulpit through which you can enact change. You're also a preacher and a man of faith. So it gives me a liberty and an opportunity that I don't always get to have with high-profile people. I would ask you, sir, as you take on the challenges that have occurred already, and those that will occur even into this next administration, both as a man, as a leader, as a father, how can we pray for you as you go into new challenges and new doors and opportunities and adversities that are, quite frankly, unpredictable? Mm. How can we pray for you? Thank you, Bishop. Um, That's probably one of the most thoughtful questions I've ever been asked in an interview. I would ask that people pray for the integrity of the NAACP and my integrity. Here's what I mean by that, that we remain true to ourselves and to the the values that have been nurtured over the course of the last century and over the course of my lifetime as, as a preacher, that they pray that we are courageous. And what I mean by that is it is all too easy to capitulate and to give in to the temptation 
to um, practice the politics of expediency as opposed to practicing the politics of our virtues uh, as a country. I would ask that people pray that we demonstrate in real ways a love for our country and a love for our people. And what that means is showing up, doing the work, not just tweeting, not just giving speeches filled with golden oratory. My belief is that most people are persuaded by the eloquence of example. That is to say, the an NAACP that shows up, an NAACP that's present, an NAACP that you can count on, an NAACP that is real and authentic and that does not shy away from, does not back away from tough positions because we were created to take on tough fights and to take on great moral challenges. And so I believe that we as a country are at a moment in which we are wrestling to ensure the safety and the sanctity of our soul. I believe the same is true of the NAACP, and I've always believed that that is the present struggle for every preacher. Every day you get up, you want to do the work that God called you to to do. You want to answer a prophetic call that is an ongoing call. It's not a call that you answer once and you're done. You answer it every day. And so those would be the things I ask that people pray for. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, you have just heard from President Cornell William Brooks. Thank you, sir, for giving us so much of your time. Thank you, Bishop. It's wonderful to be with you. I want to thank you for listening to this conversation today. I hope that you have been inspired and in some way informed. Most of all, I hope you have been challenged to get out and vote. This is Bishop T.D. Jake signing off from the interview that you have just heard with President Cornell William Brooks and myself.